If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. In Hitler's Germany, what you ate was not a personal matter. Sacrificing luxurious foodstuffs was a way for German citizens to demonstrate their patriotism. While in occupied territories, hunger was weaponized as a devastating tool of war and oppression. Historian Dr Lisa Pine has written a feature on Nazi food policy for BBC History magazine. And I spoke to her to find out more. We're going to be talking today about the food system in the Third Reich. So Lisa, to start us off, why does it matter what people ate? How was food intertwined with politics and ideology? In Nazi Germany? Food was really important in Nazi Germany, and what people ate was very significant to the regime. So we've got a lot of policies placed on the population top down, and the impact on that on the German population, and indeed particularly on different segments of the population, was really far-reaching. And I think that's an important thing to say, isn't it, at the start of this conversation, that there's so many different segments of this population at this time. Obviously, there's the German citizens who we might start with, but then, of course, people who were oppressed or occupied by the Nazis, and we'll come on to them perhaps a bit later. So let's start with the German citizens. What was the motivation behind trying to control what the nation ate? The Nazi regime was very concerned to control what the population ate. And the reason for that was that the Nazis were trying to gear the German economy towards war. So, for example, from 1936, 
Hermann Goring was talking about guns before butter. So with the implementation of the four-year plan, um, the German economy was turned towards wartime production, gearing towards armaments and away from food and consumer goods. So what this meant was a big difference in terms of what was available on the German plate. And the other thing that's really important about the policy is that the regime was concerned to try and make Germany autarkic. So by that, I mean self-sufficient, economically self-sufficient. And this had a really big impact on the German population in terms of food availability. So there's the whole side of the economy concerned with agricultural production. And if the regime didn't want to import fodder, which it didn't, then that had a big impact on farming, so particularly on on livestock farming. So why was Germany so keen to be self-sufficient in terms of food production? Like, How was this food policy shaped by previous experiences, particularly in the First World War? The food policy was indeed very strongly shaped by past experiences. And in particular, Hitler was very concerned not to repeat that turnip winter, the last winter of the First World War, in which the situation was just so devastating and so dire, with the population really struggling to to find anything to eat. Then, at the end of the First World War, turnips were regarded as, uh, as fodder. Um, and people eating that was really scraping the bottom of the barrel. So now, as the war years progressed, Hitler was determined to make sure that the Germans didn't starve. And there were lots of different ways that that occurred. Well, let's talk about a few of those different ways. What were some of the methods that the Nazis did use to try and control food production, but also food consumption? Nazis controlled um, food production by trying to make sure that everything that people were eating was produced internally. So that was one aspect. Another really important aspect in terms of the impact on the German diet was to try to discourage people from eating white bread, bleached flour, which was actually very popular, and to try to encourage whole grain Bread. So there was a whole campaign about whole grain, falcorn brot, whole grain bread. Huge campaign. Um, so trying to encourage bakers to bake that way and trying to encourage the German population to eat this. First of all, the regime argued because it was more healthy and they were very much concerned about the health of the nation and the health of the population, but also because Um, of the production, that it was easier um, to produce. And there's sort of also an ideological thing there that the white bread was associated a bit more with luxury, almost with French bread and, and, and white rolls and that kind of thing. And this was anathema to the regime too. Well, can you tell us a bit more about that ideology behind food control, this idea that some foods were were luxurious, like you say, or decadent, or even a sign of of degeneracy, I guess. How did that fit within Nazi ideology? There's a very strong ideological slant to Nazi food policy. So certainly very much the idea that actually the Germans should not be concerned with eating luxury goods, 
even in the years before the outbreak of the war, and really turning towards eating what was seasonally available. So there's a lot of um, propaganda material, uh, recipes produced by the Nazi women's magazine, was all gearing women as consumers to be very conscious and very aware of the national economy. So the kind of home economy, a microcosm of the national economy. And therefore, it was the duty or the obligation of every single German woman um, who was responsible for buying the food for their household um, to buy in, in very frugal means, to buy in accordance with what was seasonal, and especially to buy what was German. So how was this message spread to families, as you say, in particular, women and mothers who were primarily responsible for feeding their families? But how was this message of patriotic eating delivered to them? The message of patriotic eating was absolutely essential to the regime. And it used a whole array of its propaganda machine in order to influence German women housewives and mothers um, as the purchasers in the family. So a number of different initiatives, some of which came from uh, the different women's organisations. So they would go as far as putting recommended recipes and eating in women's pay packets um, at the end of the week. Mm. Or they would have radio broadcasts talking about different foodstuffs, so particularly focusing either on foodstuffs that were plentiful, trying to draw German women away from luxury goods and increasingly to draw German women away from their default, which was to cook with meat. So meat featured normally every day. But as the years went on, of course, there was a move to encourage German women, first of all, to use fish and then more and more vegetables and the, the decrease in the amount of meat in the diet and then as the war years went on, that just got more and more limited and more and more restricted. And something I found really interesting about this propaganda campaign was the attempt to, to control food through social rituals. I wonder if you could tell us about something that's called Eintopft Sundays. The Eintopft Sundays were quite an important part of social ritual and really part of the intention of the Nazi regime to bring the German population into a unified whole. So it was kind of a, a homogenization of German society. And the way that this worked was that on one Sunday each month, um, the family was encouraged to give up their usual Sunday meal and instead to eat an Eintopf or a one-pot dish, so essentially a stew. And then this was related to the bigger aspect of, of the nation. So they were going to put the money that they saved each week into the collection tins of the Winter Healthswick charity, so the Winter Relief Agency charity. So there'd be members of the Hitler Youth or other collectors coming to the door um, and collecting the coins. And the Nazi posters show this, the kind of collection box, but also they promoted the idea that a German family should sit around the table and have their Eintopf on Eintopf Sunday. It was also there in, in school textbooks. So from very early primers and reading materials for primary school children, the Eintopf featured in there. So it kind of became 
part of everyday life. And I think that's probably really important um, as an aspect of policy influencing and permeating family life, everyday life, down to eating at the table. The question of how much propaganda does permeate everyday life is always really hard to tell. But do we have any sense of whether people really kind of invested in this idea, whether ordinary people thought, yes, it is my patriotic duty, or whether they were just going with orders from above, really? It's quite nuanced and it's quite difficult to tell the extent to which every German woman was going to carry out these what they were encouraged to do in this way and, and to, to buy frugally. So certainly we know that those in the upper echelons of German society, and even quite late on and even into the war, if there were ways of getting around the system, and that, that extended actually throughout um, society in terms of turning to the black market or hoarding and bartering and those kinds of things. So there's kind of that whole angle to it too. But in terms of those who could afford, so certainly the upper classes, but also party functionaries and party leaders, you sort of see them as well, particularly once rationing came in, kind of finding their way with loopholes in rations or kind of getting off the ration items. So it certainly wasn't equal for everyone. And the situation also differed quite a lot as the years progressed, depending on if people were living in the countryside or in the city. So things were a lot easier in terms of availability, certainly in the countryside. So I want to return to black market activity in a moment. But before we do, can you tell us a bit about the rationing system that was brought in in Nazi Germany? How stringent was it? Very restrictive, really, and becoming more and more restrictive as the years went on. So we see cuts so through... Um, 1941 and 1942 in the ration regularly. And we see the population accepting the cuts, um, maybe grumbling and complaining, but accepting them nevertheless. So it sort of seems that by this stage, they are just doing what's required of them um, in, in the main. And to be honest, there's not too much choice. So there was some attempt to um, get around or to supplement. And of course, you can't blame people for trying to, to supplement what was available on the ration. So what were the most limited foods and what were some of the alternatives or replacements that were suggested for them? So of course, as we've already said, meat became less and less available as the years went on. And really, when we kind of get to the height of the war years, there's kind of literally almost nothing left in terms of meat availability. And the other thing that's really important is uh, fat and in particular butter. So butter became very much a luxury good even quite early on or regarded as a luxury good from the early years. And then in increasingly limited availability of that for the similar reasons to meat products. By 1943 to 1944, an ordinary German civilian was eating 40% less fat, 60% less meat, and 20% less bread than in 1939. And so then they kind of came onto the market, all of these inferior products. So kind of like margarine type products for a start. And so to people who like to eat butter or were used to eating butter, that already feels like a kind of downward move, doesn't it? But not only that, they developed a new product called Quark during the 1930s, which actually is still available today. Um, but that was sort of made from the kind of leftover or residue dairy production. And that actually became a product. 
And again, the regime used its propaganda tools like putting out recipe sheets or radio programs, kind of showing how this new ingredient could be used and very much promoting it. And then taking meat off the menu meant quite a lot of innovation required for these women working in their kitchens to provide a meal for their family. So things that used to have meat increasingly had different kinds of vegetables. Mushrooms were a good a good bet. But even as the war years went on, there's kind of this encouragement of the German housewife. And you see images of women going on foraging trips and the Hitler youth members as well encouraged to go out and find leaves to make tea or dandelions, carnation roots, all sorts of things used to make substitute teas and substitute coffees as well. So if you lived in the countryside, obviously foraging is a lot easier. Would you generally have a better um, diet if you lived in the countryside than if you lived in the cities? In the wartime years, things were, generally speaking, easier in the countryside. For those in the cities, even if they knew someone in the countryside, um, that they could get some extra food in that way, that that helped. But um, cities, there was always the, and particularly in the big cities, these lines, queues for food, what's available, what's not available, women having to queue up. So working women at the beginning of the day, before they start their day's work, having to queue up. So they've kind of already got that burden placed on them or at the end of the day. So at the end of the day, they're already exhausted. They have to think about what am I going to be able to cook tonight? But first of all, what am I going to be able to buy tonight? Queue up, try to get something and then try to cook with increasingly limited ingredients. And then the Nazi magazines put into place these recipes that featured no eggs, no fat at all. And featuring substitute goods. So we kind of get recipes that say things like false crab soup, false cheesecake, and you can just only begin to imagine quite how those might taste. The Nazi women's magazine called the NS Frauenwarte included features on and recipes for the Eintopf, such as the fish one-pot dish and the macaroni one-pot dish. So that was in the period 1935 to 1936. By the time we get into the wartime period, even that Eintopf, uh, those Eintopf recipes um, turned to be much more Spartan. By 1941, there were just a handful of recipes among several hundred in the Nazi women's magazine that featured any kind of meat at all. And the ones that did exist were for sausage goulash, or an Eintopf recipe made of rabbit meat. And as you can imagine there, neither of those utilised prime meat. And as the war years went on, um, the emphasis was more and more on the encouragement of frugal cooking habits and the use of substitute goods. So by 1943, um, women were obliged to be in the workforce so women in women in war work women in service and the women's magazines noted this and acknowledged this with recipes in 1943 um, titled dinner for the workers um, and baked potatoes was one of the recipes and then issues featuring articles like dried vegetables tasty and quick to prepare which included recipes with dried beans and dried white cabbage, um, as well as advice on preserving fruit and vegetables. 
And the final issue from 1942 to 1943 of the women's um, magazine included a feature on meatless main courses, so particularly um, including recipes like stuffed vegetables. And by the by the winter, so by February 1944, so again, recipes about dinner and women in the war effort. So simple recipes like red winter salad, sauerkraut eintopf, and cabbage eintopf. So I think what we're seeing that by the end of 1944 and the start of 1945, the recipes were becoming more and more austere with extremely limited ingredients, mainly featuring cabbage and potato recipes. But for those who could afford it, how did the black market operate? So the black market was illegal. So that's the first thing to be aware of. I think more important for those who could afford it, they so certainly they could find redress to the black market. So they could buy coffee, but it would be absolutely exorbitant prices. And then there's always the fear of getting caught. So there were penalties, but actually the regime perhaps surprisingly, didn't implement the the policies of of repression in terms of black market as much as we might think they would, partly because Nazi functionaries and leaders uh, were using recourse to the black market too, or kind of finding these loopholes in the rationing system to get very, very luxurious goods like seafood and shellfish and venison, cream, butter and chocolates and all the rest of it too. So it really did very much depend who you were in Nazi society. And that idea about equality for all was absolutely not the case. So the Nazi leaders had no intention of following their own rules, basically. As propaganda minister, Goebbels tried to encourage them and sort of tried to set an example himself. So from early on, we see pictures of Hitler and Goebbels and some of the other Nazi leaders having an Eintopf, or there'd be the Eintopf, images of the the Eintopf taking place as a kind of public event in public squares, say in Berlin or elsewhere, to try to encourage this change of behaviours. Just as the years go on, it kind of becomes more and more that the regime's more and more intruding into everyday life, into private life of the individuals, as we said, in this case, down to food, that it just kind of becomes entrenched over time in the same way that all aspects of Nazi propaganda and policies seem to become entrenched over time. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. The hunger plan between 1941 and 1943 successfully provided Nazi Germany with 325,000 tonnes of edible fat, 2.7 million tonnes of potatoes, and... This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 7 million tons of grain. (laughs) 
So we've spoken mainly about the majority of the German population so far, but I wonder if we could turn now to those that were occupied or oppressed by the Nazi regime. So how were they affected by this food plan? Um, in particular, the nations that lived to the east. So we know that the Nazis were very concerned with their policy of Lebensraum, living space to the east. So um, an absolutely brutal war in the west too, but much more so in, in, in the eastern arena of the war. And particularly the reasons for that was that the Nazis believed that the people there were inferior, they labelled them as subhuman, and they believed in the end that in order to save the German population from starvation and from the privations of war, the Nazi Minister for Food and Agriculture, Herbert Back, um, believed that hunger should be exported outside the Reich, as I've just said, particularly to those populations in the East regarded as subhuman and, and inferior. Um, so essentially placing starvation policy on those annexed and occupied nations and taking huge amounts of foodstuffs and resources then back to the Reich. And that was Bax, what he called the hunger plan, what became known as the hunger plan, that the Third Reich shouldn't starve, but that particularly those enemies, those um, inferior peoples that they regarded in the East, it was okay for them to starve. So hunger was used as a weapon of war, really, by the Nazis? Hunger was absolutely used as a weapon of war by the Nazis in the campaign of war and in starving those enemy populations. It was also used as a weapon in the final solution, so in the genocide as well. Um, not only that, but also meagre rations in the concentration camps and working people to death who were inferior inside Germany too, and who may have been of German ethnicity, but certainly in terms of policies towards uh, the Jews and towards the Sinti and the Roma, who the Nazis called the Gypsies. So those genocidal policies towards those groups also meant that the people who were in the death camps in Poland were working in obviously extreme conditions, exposed to the elements, but also with very, very minimal calorie intake and still doing hard labour on that. So essentially working to death was part of that, as well as the, the policies of, of, of gassing to death um, the Jews. And I, and I think that images of, of starving people, hollow-eyed starving people, are one of the images of the Holocaust that people would be most familiar with. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about food provision or, or lack thereof in concentration camps and death camps? The food provision in the concentration camps and especially in the death camps was absolutely minimal. So the people who were held and imprisoned in the camps were literally in a desperate situation. So the food ration might have been a very watery soup um, distributed at lunchtime with almost nothing of any substance in it and then maybe some scraps of root vegetables, and then a very small bread ration at night time. And that had to sustain not just ordinary living, but it had to sustain hard labour as well. And this was absolutely, completely insubstantial, even just for normal, your kind of normal daily keeping your body going, let alone doing hard labour and in freezing cold conditions in the winter um, in addition to that. So the people who were living at, at 
Auschwitz, those who weren't murdered straight away, the ones who were selected to work, um, had to find ways of trying to supplement. And when we read the accounts of Holocaust survivors, they kind of describe the way. So, for example, when this coffee drink, not real coffee, substitute coffee, this drink was distributed, those who were lucky enough and got the bottom of the barrel um, actually, there was something in there that was a tiny bit more nutritious than just the liquid. The same thing applied to the soup. But in addition, the f- the the bread ration uh, was often mouldy. Um, the water provision also was not sanitary. So they're really, really unbelievably brutal conditions, and not obviously not designed to achieve survival, but quite the opposite, to achieve the demise um, of the victims in these camps. And it's worth mentioning, isn't it, that um, these kind of policies were also applied to Soviet prisoners of war in some instances? Indeed, the conditions of the prisoner of war camps could be terrible too. Not so bad so much for the Western prisoners of war, British and American, although it was by no means great, but certainly for the Soviet prisoners of war. So once again, for these people who the regime regarded to be inferior and these kind of barbarian hordes as they were uh, regarded, yeah, very, very, very difficult conditions in terms of living conditions, but also food rations given to prisoners of war. So all of this brutality in the East was it successful in the Nazis' aims of making sure that their own population didn't starve? The hunger plan between 1941 and 1943 successfully provided Nazi Germany with 325,000 tonnes of edible fat, 2.7 million tonnes of potatoes and 7 million tonnes of grain. So we can see that obviously that greatly helped what was available inside the Reich. Of course, what it meant was that feeding the German population entailed by its nature then the starvation and the mass murder of others. So we were talking about the Soviet prisoners of war and in the winter of 1941 to 2, more than one million Soviet prisoners of war were deliberately left to starve to death in camps. Um, And of course, millions more civilians were deprived of food and the Nazi victims perishing from starvation, as well as the other policies, hard labour and being gassed to death in the death camps. So how did all of this um, impact on Germany's ability to fight the war? This was all really important because... The ability to fight the war, and of course we know that the war went very wrong from Stalingrad onwards for the Nazis compared to how easy those initial victories had been. So there's kind of the whole relationship of the German population and the regime and Hitler kind of seen in regard to food policy as well. So I think the really important thing here is that Hitler was very concerned to keep up popular morale. And Goebbels was too. So this um, involved the use of quite a lot of propaganda. um, But also in real terms, if the population was starving, that would have had a very, very bad impact on popular morale. And I think that having that memory of the First World War, and particularly that last winter, the turnip winter. I think, again, ideologically, Hitler had his view about the stab in the back and 
of the First World War and the reasons why Germany had lost, um, which he and others on the far right didn't believe that the soldiers on the battlefield had lost, but they'd been stabbed in the back by those who signed the peace treaties, but also by the population that kind of were fed up of the war and and, and starving and, and not on side anymore. So he was determined in the as, as the Second World War went on, Um, to try to make sure that that situation didn't occur again. And finally, Lisa, you've done loads of work on different aspects of Germany during the war. But what do you think that focusing on food in particular can tell us about the, the Nazi system more widely? I think that food in particular, we can see it here as a microcosm of the Nazi system more widely. So kind of the social history of the Third Reich, which I've always found absolutely fascinating. And much of my research has been on that. So on the family, on education. So I I kind of developed an interest here then in looking at food because it tells us so much. So the way the way that people were educated about food, how food impacted their family life. So all of these things that I've kind of been writing about over decades, I kind of now kind of just use this this angle in or a kind of way into the regime to see how fundamentally that regime affected the German population's life on a daily basis and literally at their dining table or in their kitchen. You know, it's so important. And th- those policies impacted that severely. That was Dr Lisa Pine. Her books include Dictatorship and Daily Life in 20th Century Europe, The Family in Modern Germany, and Life and Times in Nazi Germany. If you'd like to read a feature that Lisa wrote for us on this subject, search for Nazi Germany food at historyextra.com. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green.